0: to another edition of the Culture Class podcast, a podcast where, to, where we get to interact with different people. I'm mumbling my words. Man, Martine has me mumbling my words. That's the first. But <laughs> welcome to another edition of the podcast. This is Culture Class. And today we have author, speaker, um, DI consultants, spokesperson on immigration, and all around superwoman, Martine Kalau. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Nosa. and kudos to you for saying pronouncing my last name perfectly. Thank you,
0: oh man. yeah, that was, I was I try my best to to get the name pronunciations correct. If I don't know, I'll just use your first name and ask you what your last name is. So impressive. You know.
1: impressive. And
0: Martine just moved to d c right? And we're just talking before the podcast about I, how I lived in d c for a couple of years. So how's the weather over there? How are things in d c.
1: It's now like 60. I think I think the high today was 60, which is unbelievable. Um, but it has been a pretty mild winter. So I can't complain. I actually personally like the snow. So um, I'm sure. Yes, I love. I live snow. in Colorado. Want to swap places? Yeah, I think I would. <laughs> I would like to. Although the altitude, I'm an African girl from Congo. So the altitude thing doesn't work for me so well. I got altitude sickness the last time I was in Colorado.
0: Yeah, but I'll tell you one thing you don't want to live in DC during the government shutdown. I think uh, the last government shutdown I was still living in DC was just, it's almost like a ghost town. Like it affects the whole local economy of DC. It's so strange how that happens, but you know. And I come from a country where we pass budgets like literally like five months into the next year. That's where we're passing the previous year budget. So observing a shutdown was just so foreign for me, but you know. One of those I do that remember
1: programs. that. I think it was in 2017 or 2018. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And that was like my first experience in DC, but it was, it was a good pre preparation or precursor to a pandemic. That's a <laughs> good way to look at
0: it. So before we answer your question about whether you're running for office or not, <laughs> let's peel back on your background, <laughs> right? Cause it'll, this would be a great story, right? It culminates in you kind of like, <laughs> running for some type of office i mean you already have the public persona and, and everything unlocked. Yeah. like i'll vote for you i mean depending on what you're running for i guess but you is. know well i guess you can't run for president because you weren't born here no. right yeah right,
1: i i'm so. not qualified to run for president um i think i can run for secretary of state right yes I is believe- that a, i thought
0: that was like a appointed position is that kind of like an election thing
1: Well, actually, it is a pointed position, but you know, if you're connected, you
0: know. You you know what? Like, it's high time. um, You know, like an immigrant becomes Secretary of State because what's the Secretary of State's job? Like international relations, like traveling all over. So, someone who came from outside the U.S. would be make perfect sense, right?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna embarrass myself here, but I do believe Colin Powell was Secretary of State eons ago. No, Thank
0: I don't think he was. was. I think he was like joint chiefs or something. Or maybe he oh, was really? after he retired.
1: Oh my I gosh. Don't know. Okay, so now I I'm going to I'm just going to do a quick Google search right here as yeah. we're talking. Um
0: <laughs> I it was him and Condoleezza or uh, Condoleezza Rice. Condoleezza Rice.
1: Was, uh yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, but as I'm Googling this United States, yes, he was secretary of state. Oh, He
0: was nice. Yes.
1: Okay. I was right about that. Although I thought he was born in somewhere in the West Indies. Um, but he wasn't, he was born in Harlem. Okay. So yeah,
0: Yeah. I
1: actually don't know if you must be American born, um, to be secretary of state, but, um, I am going to bypass the, um, politics route. It would make a great, and i'm gonna allow Ilyan omar who is representing africa the whole continent to just you know maintain that that role and status um yes <laughs> i right, right not my uh, speed <laughs>
0: i feel you i feel you and our listeners are probably listening like what is he talking about let's get into it right like yeah, why did i say like it. that would be like a perfect culmination of martine's story right so Um, Let me see if I I, I can get from some of the research I did. So um, you're from the Congo and Zambia.
1: That's correct. Uh, your, is your
0: dad from Congo and your, your birth dad from Congo and your mom from Zambia? Actually, or my mother,
1: sure? my biological father and my mother, are both from, um, DRC, which Congo, which was formerly Zaire, they relocated to Zambia before I was born. I was born in Zambia. Uh, ah. my biological father currently lives in, um, Zambia with his, uh, his family, his wife and his wives and kids. So, uh, yeah, he's Interesting. Like okay,
0: years. so you were born in Zambia, but yes. your parents were from Congo, and then I'm you emigrated Africa. to the U.S. when you were four years old, right? Little did you know what was about to happen to you, right?
1: Right, right. No, I mean you don't know. I mean, I just remember the the term that I think it's it's I think it's Lingala term. It's, uh, bulaya is a Lingala term, which is a language spoken in Congo. Um, that's how my mom described the US, like we're going to Bulaya, we're going, and it's, it, Bulaya means paradise, right? I mean, that's what oh, wow. immigrants think. And you know, you're four years old, you're like, you know, with your limited capacity to imagine things, what whatever paradise is, it sounded wonderful, like lots of milk, lots of honey, land of milk and honey. Um, but who knew that life would take a, you know, a course, a turn for, you know, I guess, depending on your perspective the worst but ended up I And mean, the
0: story is not over yet it's still being written yes, right
1: that's right yeah. That's right. but it's
0: what just... was paradise for you was that Maryland was that New York and yes. how did paradise look like for you growing up
1: yeah it was uh it was Maryland and it was it was I had a pretty fun childhood I mean my whole family my mother's family all lived in the U- uh, my mother's brothers and sisters um immigrated to U.S. um before she did she was probably one of the last of her siblings to um Immigrate to, the, immigrate to the US and we all kind of lived in like a neighborhood and an enclave and my grandmother was here. It was just fun. Like I remember weekends of just being around my uncles, my aunts at five years old, six years old, there would be family fashion shows where all the little kids would wear, you know, all the adult clothing and walk down the runway and my aunts and uncles would be clapping and giving us money and all that stuff. Just, nice. you know, it was fun. It was it was a really fun childhood because I grew up with my cousins, and you know, it just felt like a very incubated, if if that's if that makes sense. Um, yeah, it does like,
0: make sense. I mean, coming from Africa, which is like a very communal setting, right? You grew up yeah. with all these cousins, and everyone is your brother and sister, even though they're that's your right. fourth cousin, and like kind of like replicating that here. Must yeah. have fostered that area of uh, that sense of community growing up, uh, but. Amazing. So it was all nice and rosy, right? Up until your teens, like you want to tell the audience what happened like right around when you turned like 13, 14.
1: Yeah. Wow. You have a great, you did great research. Um. Actually, when I was 12 years old, it was when we, my, my mother, you know, married a US citizen, my stepfather who was in my life from the time I was seven, you know, until, you know, my teenage years, he was for all intents and purposes, my father, he raised me. Um you know, taught me all the things that I needed to know, like set the standard and the structure for me to be the woman that I am today. I mean, in Mm. so many ways, he was incredible. And I'm sorry um, to cut
0: you short, but what were some of those specifics when you say set the standards?
1: Yeah. Like he would teach me, like, I remember every night religiously, he would help me with my homework, my math homework, all my homework. And I would start crying because I hated math And, um, you know, and he would just help me understand like, okay, you know, you can't cry about things when you're frustrated, you have to find solutions. And if I'm never, if I'm not around in the future, like, what are you going to do? You have to find a way to figure things out. Um, you know, if you're struggling with math, you know, at that time there was a homework hotline, this was like the late nineties, okay. Homework hotline, you could call a hotline and have somebody help you. If you didn't do well in school, you didn't do well in a test, ask for extra credit, um, things like that. When I got in trouble, my punishment would be to read a book that he would assign, whether it was like a 300 page Alice in Wonderland book or Malcolm X or what have you, and then write a book report and then present it to him and my mother. Like I'd have to give a presentation. I thought he was so mean to me, like, oh, he's so mean. I mean, this was the punishment I got, but Look at how it framed the person that I am. I mean, I had no idea that that's what he was doing. He was just setting me up for success, and so I owe. uh, I'm just greatly indebted to him and everything he did to make me help me become the woman that I am. So all was well until my I turned 12. My stepfather became ill. He was. Diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, um, cancer, we moved from Maryland to Ohio. So it was the first time I was disconnected from my from my clan. We were moving to Ohio, where his family was from and lived, so he could be closer to his family. So little did I know that he was he was dying. I did not know that, and nor should I need to know that at twelve years old. And by the time I was thirteen, uh, my stepfather died, and wow. it. Then my mom and I, you know, in this new environment in Columbus, Ohio, um, and my mother is very much of a Congolese woman, African woman, like she barely spoke English, even though, you know, she, she's, you know, learning English as an adult, I'm, I know is much harder than a child. And uh, we just navigated, you know, the, the, the culture, the community um, alone. And by the time I was 15 years old, my mom passed away. Oh, wow! Um, so I was her caretaker for, you know, she, she quickly became ill. It seemed like shortly after my stepfather died and I was her caretaker. And then she passed away when I was 15 and then life just, it just, it just changed. It's like the rug was pulled from underneath me. Um, this, this, this this bulaya right this land of milk and honey where everything paradise, was, seems so paradise was no longer it was like the opposite of of paradise uh, that that must have been very
0: traumatic for like a, a teenager mm-hmm. like you were 13 your dad passed away at 15 two years later yes. your mom passed away did you have any siblings that your mom and dad ever have any kids
1: no, Other kids? no. my mom had i'm i'm the seventh of my mom's uh children and um they all were in Congo. And, and uh, my stepfather had one daughter. um, So I had a stepsister um, who lived with her mother for the most part. And, you know, she used to visit like on in summers during the summer time. And my mom's like many immigrant parents, you know, she was fleeing. She came to the U S because she was trying to create a paradise, a better life. So she could bring all of her children here. Right. I mean, Congo, formerly known as Zaire, is still in a, is war torn and has been for decades. I mean, it, it's it's a country that is rich. There's so, but it's been pillaged by all the countries surrounding it, by the U.S., by Europe, you know, France, Belgium, you know, what have you, and because of its resources, all of its natural resources, and so. It just, it hasn't been given the opportunity to really flourish the way that it can. And people there are really suffering. And my mother's focus was to bring her other children here. I was already here. I was her youngest. Um, She obviously needed to make sure that I came with her to the U.S. I was a baby. But then her, once I was here, her feeling was, okay, Martine is here. She's safe. Now let me bring my other children. And that was her focus for mm. most of her life. And she unfortunately passed away without being able to realize that because people took advantage of her. I mean, she would send money to get, you know, mm. and all that and, you know, for visas for my brother. And, you know, you know, you give some money, you give like a couple thousand dollars to a friend of a friend and
0: get done, right?
1: And nothing, nothing happens and oh you don't get back. And so she, she was really broken from that. And yes, there was a lot of trauma from- my, the loss of my stepfather, who was like my knight in shining armor to watching my mother being sick and the fear of losing your, your mother, like the fear of losing that is like, that's like really being disconnected. Like that umbilical cord is cut. And when you are a young child, a teenager, that's like your, that's your greatest fear to lose your parents, because then what, like, it seems like life is literally over at that point
0: like the fear got made worse when it actually happened right because you were 15 like that's right around the age it's not like you were like 25 or something when it right. happened right at right. 15 that's right around the age where you're looking for extra guidance because you're you're supposed to leave the nest like start going to college and start making your own like you're a teenager now so how did you navigate that whole thing like were you you probably weren't in college at the time right when it happened but how no. did your life change like who started to How do you take care of yourself? To
1: to make the long story short, I mean, I was 15. So 15 is far, I mean, unless you're a genius and there are a lot of child geniuses, um, but 15, you're in high school, you know, and you're just like becoming in, this is the adolescent years. You're trying to figure things out. Um, To make the long story short, because it is a long story, which is why I wrote a whole memoir, a book about it. Um, My mother's family came to, um, to the rescue. Uh, so I thought, but it ended up being, um, even more turmoil for me because I dealt with, I was, I was tossed from one home to another. Um, I experienced abuse, um, neglect and, um, from some relatives and there were other relatives that just, you know, turned a blind eye, you know, just kind of acted like they didn't see or know anything. And, um, these were my mom's siblings i mean these were her you know her blood brothers and sisters so it really did break my heart um i i lived you know i was tossed from massachusetts to maryland and um you know it, it eventually you know the 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 shining light was a result of a stranger who walked into my aunt's consignment store one day my aunt was trying to starve me because she was, she thought I needed to not eat and be skinny and lose weight and look beautiful. I mean, this is like, she was very warped and uh, take me out of school so I could work more in her consignment store um, alone. And this woman who just, I mean, she was obviously sent from, you know, I I really do believe in, you know, a higher being, higher power. She just had, she was just an angel on earth who must have seen or sensed something. Saw me working in this consignment store as a young teenager by myself in a neighborhood that was unsafe and uh, just figured that there was something that needed to be done without me saying much, right? Sometimes silence is the loudest thing you can hear, you know, and nice. uh, sort of maneuvered through. And this, this, it was, she was a beautiful Jamaican woman, connected with a group of other black women in DC who uh, helped uh, black students uh, get into uh, like Episcopal uh, prep schools. And they sort of maneuvered and sort of like, again, I had this clan, like they just surrounded me and incubated me and did it in such a way that was not threatening to my aunt. And that would not put me in a situation where I would feel like, uh, I would get in trouble and then just sort of slowly remove me from the situation. And then I ended up in boarding school in Charlottesville, Virginia. Wow. All yeah. of a
0: sudden you're a teenager. And, and if you guys yeah. know where this, with this story is going, obviously like we'll put the title of this episode up there. Like all this time, you didn't know that you were undocumented, right? For no, the lack of a better word, you were just living your life.
1: I was just surviving life. I would say that i I feel like I've just started living life in the last, I would say seven years um up oh, wow. until then, i was I've been surviving life. and um, you know, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, because especially in 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 light of black history and I think so many, you know the the journey of a lot of black people in in America and the world actually is about survival and Um, there's a lot of pressure like put on, on, on black people to, to survive and survive through trauma. So anyhow, uh, I'll get off my soapbox on that my tangent, but I will say that I ended up in boarding school, didn't know how I was in boarding school. I mean, it wasn't like I, the school didn't have enough money, um, scholarship money. And so I learned later on that it was through the grace and, um, kindness of, a judge, a federal judge who's low, who lived in Charlottesville and his wife, who decided that they were going to be my benefactors and pay my way through prep school, uh, boarding school. I had no idea. I didn't even know how I was there. Just knew how that. How did they would...
0: find you? Was it some type of program or something?
1: Yeah, it was a program and the school. Um, the school just saw the value that I brought to yeah, just this the, the campus and they had connections, right? Like private institutions have connections. And then this person said, this judge said, look, I, I would like to, my wife and I would like to sponsor her and pay her way. And this was, you know, I think the the time the school is $27,000 a year. I mean, it wasn't wow. like cheap, you know? So, uh, and this person, this, this federal judge and, um, retired judge. Now he's, he's, he became another father figure in my life, you know? And so I'm, For someone who lost so many parents in in her lifetime, I've also gained so many parents and and I'm so blessed in a lot of ways. Um, And uh, yeah, I went through high school and uh, it wasn't until I got to college and I went to college through private scholarship money again. And this time I was an anonymous donor in college. I went to Hamilton College in upstate New York, a liberal arts college. And it was not until my first year as a first year student where I was looking to make extra money um, by working in the Dean of Faculty's office. And I didn't have, I had a social security card that I came, I got when I entered the U.S. when I was four years old, it said non-working. And um, this was back in 2000, right? Or 1999 or 2000. So the school administrator, myself, the school, you know, our ignorance, we thought, let's just go and adjust, just get a working, change this to working status so that I could work and make money. And uh, that's when I was placed in removal proceedings immediately in that moment. Wait, 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 wait. So wait, you wanted to get a job on campus. Did you get the job? Like, how are you f- found out? Thank you for asking, because we want to make sure the listeners are clear on what happened. Um, We went to the Social Security Administration to adjust my Social Security card, the status. So it would, you know, we could change it from non-working, because that means Ah. you're eligible to work in the United States to working. And we thought just through pure ignorance that that's what we do. We just make a request like, hey, I said
0: we who else was involved in this?
1: This is like a college administrator, you know, got it. So, I mean, I went to, a, it was a liberal arts college. So, you know, you've got, it's unlike a university, you've got, you know, college administrators are, are much more connected to the students and, um, you know, so we went and and it, I was placed in removal proceedings in that point and I was redirected to the Buffalo um, court system. And um, yeah, it was just completely shocking. You know, it, it, I remember there were times where, during my, my youth, my aunt would say things like, we need to work on your papers, you know, but you would hear things like that, but you wouldn't really make the connection. Mm. And also when you're surviving life and thinking about like where you're going to sleep, what you're going to eat, you're not the the last thing on your mind. And what does that mean papers for me? My ignorance was, Hey, I grew up in the U.S. I went to school in the U S like with my friends, I spoke English like I didn't think I was any different, you know, and uh, yes, I was placed in removal proceedings. And around that time, 9-11 occurred. So things just worsen and, you know, illegal aliens, which is the terminology, there was no such thing as undocumented immigrant um, were demonized, right? We were terrorists and all these things. So, you know, there was like this fear of it couldn't travel. It couldn't drive, couldn't take the bus all these places because there were raids, immigration, immigrant raids. And so there was a catch 22 of, well, how do I get to my court hearings? How do I go to my master calendar hearings that happened? It seemed like arbitrarily whenever the judge decided to um, schedule them and then you would show up and it was like five minutes. But those those five minutes of a hearing would take me weeks and months to figure out how am I going to get there? How do I, you know, can I get a friend, you know, a college administrator to take me? How much is it going to cost? How am I going to find money to pay because I can't really work, right? And then let's not, you know, overlook the mental health part of it. like the just the, right. the fear., uh, the judge that I was appointed to in the Buffalo Court had a really bad reputation. He was actually asked to leave the Miami court because he had a really bad reputation with the Haitian immigrants mm. in that court. and so he was redirected to the buffalo court only to terrorize people like myself and he would say he said things to me like you deserve to be deported i mean who says things like that you know this is very interesting i want to peel back some of this because
0: some of our listeners like listen from outside the u.s right i think every international listener understand what getting papers mean right it's like yes. the whole american dream go out there, get your papers, that type of thing, because you had come to the U.S. at such a young age and gone through the system, and, like, you were, like, American in your eyes, like, you didn't really realize that you needed paper, and you kind of, like, I would say maybe outed yourself in a way, so if you don't have papers traditionally, you tend to just lay low, like, don't interact, some people don't even go near an airport, so so they don't, like, you know interact with any government agency and by mistake get deported but you being like this teenager who was just living her life went to a government agency and that's how they knew that oh this person so from when you went to the office did it affect your school because you said you were placed in court proceedings right you had to go to court to defend yourself did that affect your school at all you're still trying to go to school while also doing this immigration oh yeah
1: yeah, all great points that you're making. Um, I think it's important to say that it wasn't necessarily. I mean, I guess that is a way to say it. To think of it, I outed myself, but there was it was out of pure ignorance and a lot of
0: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of the journey of immigrants undocumented or stateless people. Because I later find out that I'm also stateless, not just undocumented, but stateless as well. Is you know, there's always like who's who's to I'm blame. Sorry, what's
0: what's the right? difference undocumented and stateless?
1: Yeah, I I can explain it in a minute. I just want to finish this thought because I think okay. there's like this emphasis that the media portrays like someone's at fault. It's either your parents, somebody's at fault, um, but a lot of times it's circumstances. So at some point, it's impossible. Like you have to think about it. I didn't have a family. I didn't have a way. I didn't have a home to a place to sleep. I needed to stay in school. I needed to, and if I stayed in school, I needed money. Like I couldn't work, like go to McDonald's and get a job. I couldn't get in the car and drive. Otherwise I'd risk the the possibility of someone, you know, if I got stopped, right. I would, I was always, I was always like one step away from eventually being found out. And I, I don't want to under, you know, like, I don't want to brush over that because they think that's a lot of individuals in this experience in 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 these circumstances are only one one step away from potentially being found out so it's not like that simple to just stay under the radar it's 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 really painful and it means True. not living your full life and that's that's inhumane to me i I don't think that's that's right or fair and it's just taking away people's basic human rights so it, you know one way one could see it as outing yourself but one could say it was almost inevitable it was going to happen one way or another or also I i have to find some way to like literally live under I don't know like in a in a, like in a hole and make, sure, right. and make sure to be able to support myself so
0: and, and let me and let me clarify when i say outing yourself i wasn't by any way kind of yeah. like assigning blame or anything i'll no, just no, say no, it's I, fine. I understand like being an immigrant myself like i understand yeah. the circumstances and you know sometimes particularly in upstate new york right you hear of all these things with some particular communities where there are even raids and quotas yeah. Where Absolutely. like ICE agents actually go out and round people okay. up on, on the street and try to, they know they're working in all these factories and things, and they go round them up and like, if they they can't yes. prove their citizenship, they're placed in the So definitely not assigning blame, I guess that was the wrong word to use. Um, I'll just try to just kind of buttress what it was like for a teenager. Oh, yeah. At that point, no, 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 of
1: no offense taken at all. And I'm glad we're having this conversation. I think it, I, I'm i glad you said what how you said it. You said what you said, because I wanted to just clarify and also point out that it's it's almost inevitable. I mean, it's a situation where like you know, it's a catch 22, like you're going, you know, you're set up, the system is set up for you to fail, no matter what you do or don't do, you're going to fail at some point. Um, and if you try to just stay under the radar, you're gonna, the, the risk you take is not living life fully. And that's painful too. And I know people who have, and that's really painful, right? Um, so then to 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 answer your second question, which was, "Um, did I stay in school?" All of that, The benefit of going to a private institution is that there's private money, right? Like private institutions don't necessarily have to rely on government funding or federal mo- you know money for everything. And so that was my saving grace, quite honestly. Um, mm-hmm. the college saw the saw my value. I was able to and i'll give myself the credit and take some ownership here that i was able to illustrate to the college my value my contribution in the community and the society all of these things and so the college decided that they were they were going to stand behind me and back me up right so not only did they make sure that i was getting private funding for my you know for my scholarship it was privately funded I would say 80% of it was right. I still ended up paying um, some loans in the, in, in the end school loans, but not, not, not significant. They decided that they were going to back me up in that way, but also they also like went above and beyond to try to secure an attorney for me to try to get, you know, a local, their local congressman to write, you know, um, a testimonial on my behalf, like to try to advocate for me. They did not have to do all of that but they did, you know, and I'm truly appreciative. And I was able to then also go to grad school at Syracuse university at the Maxwell school, which did the same, take the same, took the same initiative. Now Syracuse is a, is a university, but they're private institutions within the university. So same experience. And so, yes, I stayed in school because there were no other options for me. So remember the, the, you know, being undocumented is also coupled with also being an orphan at that point. Right. So Mm. what am I, where, where else do I go? Like, I don't have anywhere to go. So for me, I knew that I need, the only way that I could survive was to try to stay in school because school was going to give me a place to sleep, uh, you know, food to eat and an education. And that was my access to freedom. Right. Right. Then to answer the last question you had, I just want to make sure I cover all of them, which was, what's the difference between stateless and being undocumented? Um, I'm part of an organization called United Stateless. They are one of the most amazing organizations that really support and advocate for stateless persons. Um, And one of the founders of it says it best, like the best analogy, if being undocumented is like being in prison being stateless is like Mm. being locked up in solitary confinement you're Mm. invisible to even the undocumented community right so being stateless essentially means um start off by saying there are over 12 million stateless stateless people in the world and there are different ways that people become stateless they become stateless because their government or their countries are absolved um if there are you know um natural disasters and, and, you know, their homes are, you know, their country is like gone. That's another way, uh, a different way, of be- another way of becoming stateless is if you're born in a country and you're not, you don't get citizenship based on birthright, but based on paternal or maternal, you know, proof that your mother or father was from that country. And that doesn't always work out right um, in that way. So you, you know, we hear many people, for example, are born in, let's say, saudi arabia you can only get status in saudi arabia through your paternal lineage so if your father wasn't born in saudi arabia not even your maternal lineage just your paternal yeah yeah okay so then another way of becoming stateless and very common and i i like to share this example because i don't think people are aware of this is a lot of haitians that we saw we saw images of haitians trying to migrate um through, over the border, we saw these alarming and visceral images of border patrol on horses, like lashing them. Mm-hmm. And people thought, well, why are they here? They should go back, right? Like, I heard those comments. Where are they going? They're stateless, uh, meaning that many of those are Haitian Dominicans. They were born in Dominican Republic. Their parents are born in Dominican Republic. Their grandparents are born in Dominican Republic. But the Dominican Republic has instituted this really draconian and racist law that says anyone who, um, you know, is of Haitian descent starting from 1942, right? Like they are they have a Haitian lineage. They're no longer, they cannot, they're no longer citizens of Dominican Republic, even if they were born oh, wow. in the Dominican Republic. That was so, an actual law that got passed? Yes, yes, wow. yes. So if you were born, NOSA, in, in, in Dominican Republic, let's say you're Haitian, you are not a citizen of Haiti, of Dominican Republic, but then you also weren't born in Haiti. So Haiti is not obligated to take you back because let's yeah. imagine you weren't born in Haiti. Your mother wasn't born in Haiti. Your father wasn't. Their parents mm-hmm. were born in Haiti. So where do you go? You're stateless.
0: Wow, I think I think this is very it's like most immigration cases, right? It just so seems so complicated and far removed that the common person tends to ask those questions, right? Like yeah. I remember when I was going to school in DC and I went to school as an international student, right? And we went to Canada to first things first, all my friends were telling me that going to Canada it's a bad idea. That I'm an international like I'm still in school, like I have an F1 visa, like, I could go to Canada and come back. But I went to Canada, everyone was American except me. And I think we're connecting from Vancouver to Toronto and back to DC. And in Toronto, the connecting flight was being delayed. We're, we're late. I'm sorry, the connecting flight was like, you know, about to depart and we're delayed. And everyone just went with their blue passport and scanned the the machine at the airport and moved on. And they're like, oh, no, so let's go, let's go. I can't use my German my passport to scan that. I have to see a physical. Border person, and right. the line for that was longer, and and the Americans didn't understand. They were like, what, like scan your passport. I, I didn't even know how to explain that. You know, not all passports could exactly. be scanned, type of thing. Right. So, um, I think it takes a lot of nuance. Like, if someone doesn't have that personal connection, like you said yes. about that lady, who who met you at your aunt's consignment store and knew your story or the judge or someone like that, like if they don't have that personal connection, like friend of a friend. And they just grew up, they just—they don't know about these things because
1: it doesn't affect them, right? It's a complex ecosystem. But I think what I do think is that it's becoming, because we're talking about more and more, I don't think people can feign ignorance anymore, like because it's mm. so close to all of us, right? I mean, if I may not be undocumented or dealing with issues with paperwork, but I'm sure that I know someone who knows someone, I'm sure the person at my job, I'm sure. And so what we get to do is change the face of immigrant, of undocumented immigrant or statelessness. I think we think we're so far from it. And I'm just using a general, we we're so far removed from it. And we don't understand it because we don't really know people like that. Right. But the truth is we do like, a stateless person doesn't can look and sound like anything, anybody, right? Wow. We've got stateless people from the former USSR, right? Uh, we've got stateless they're you're, white European, they're Ethiopian, they're Congolese, right? Like, it can vary, and so I think if we start to acknowledge that, we start to humanize what it means to be undocumented. We start to humanize what it starts what it means to be stateless. We can realize that we're not that far removed from it. Like probably the maybe two people down from us, people we work with, they could right. be dealing with something, and that's all. I mean, I'm I'm not. This isn't even a political positioning on how people should feel about immigration. It's more about let's just acknowledge that this is a human condition, and we're not that far from removed from it, and it could happen to anyone, right? Facts. Facts. I, and I
0: totally, I totally agree. Like I live here in Colorado, and I know I ran into some dude sometime i think it was from like australia new zealand new zealand or something and he was undocumented but because it was white like no one ever like so i guess like colored people like black people and and other people of color like have that added disadvantage that not only are you undocumented or stately you still get discriminated against and if you're caught maybe the, the court won't once granted the same leniency yes. that they might grant, like someone from like new Zealand or Australia or Ireland or or something like that, you know?
1: Yes, there's certainly biases based on physical appearances. There are biases based on, look, I also have to acknowledge, you know, I do DEI work. Um, and so the that that term privilege, people are not comfortable with, but it's true. And I've not acknowledged the privilege that I carry, even in being stateless and undocumented. I remember years ago when my, my story, I I went public with my story for the very first time. Um, I was sitting with some of my other friends who were also undocumented. One happened to be, um, a a black male Senegalese and another happened to be a Moroccan male. Um, and they said, you know, like, you're going to evoke sympathy. Like people are going to like, they're not. And cause I was so worried about the backlash and people coming like wanting to hurt me and they're like no one's gonna want to hurt you martine like look you're a woman that's one right so in this space you're not threatening you know both of the men happen to be muslim right i'm a black woman of course there are some there are biases i'm going to acknowledge that but i also have to acknowledge the privilege that i i sit in i also acknowledge that people hear me and see me and that's not the first thing they think usually they Mm. don't think that, and then they're like oh you are and then they're because I don't fit their the profile of who, what a stateless person or documented immigrant sounds like, mm-hmm. they're now more interested in learning more, right? So I also acknowledge the privilege that I possess even in this space, which is why I feel that when we have privilege, it's our, it's our duty, it's our obligation to... Help those that don't. Right. And so that's also another reason that I speak out and I share because I know that people are going to be much more willing to listen to me because, you know, I'm not as threatening as perhaps someone else sitting right next to me who might also be in the same situation.
0: And then very important work you're doing as well. And, you know, I'm playing, we're playing our part at Culture Class to help amplify that, you know, ho- however way we can. Um, yeah. But let's touch on your journey, like your seven year battle like the court system, yes. like that must have been ruling like seven years yeah. going to court. And it's not like you killed someone or something. It's like right. you're just immigration court. Like, how was that like?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, when you come out of it, it's, you know, it's like, okay, I fought this battle. I'm super grateful. And then I also I put it in perspective because I also have friends who, like I've mentioned in, you know earlier, some of my friends who've been in this battle and they're still in it. Now we're talking 20 years, we're talking 22 years. And so I put it in perspective, but I also don't wanna take away from my experience. It was, it felt like torment. It was um, torment because the reality was I was, you know, I was dealing with a court system, particularly that, that judge who did not like me and he was on a crusade and I use that, I don't use that term lightly to annihilate me, to get rid of me, to, 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 to to put me in my place. Right. Um, And I also was dealing with um, a lawyer at that time. I went through several lawyers, but the, the, my, the lawyer that I initially started with was not, I would say there was some malpractice. He was incompetent and now, when I understand and I really take a look at the whole immigration process and policy and all of everything, I get it now. I don't, I'm not justifying his actions, but not all immigration lawyers are made the same. And immigration, not all immigration lawyers understand how to to uh they don't understand removal proceedings. And the ones that do are inundated with cases. And mm. they're so it's so depressing. Like
0: this are these like
1: public defenders or fun.
0: you, you, hire, yeah, you and pay a them. lot
1: of, I mean, there's some most, I mean, if you think about it, the individuals that are in removal proceedings, most of them don't have money. So they're really relying on pro bono attorneys. So these attorneys are like pro public defenders, right? They're pro bono. They're inundated. Sometimes they have 30, 40, 50 cases. It's depressing work. It's really, really depressing. Like you're watching people fight for their lives to stay in a in a country that you're seeing families that are broken. You're in. So I think it takes a mental toll on the attorneys as well. They can't manage their caseload. It's just so much. And so my attorney at that time, the first attorney, he wasn't he, you know, he would forget things like I would let him know, hey, I now am now in grad school, I'm not in college, my address has changed. We need to file that with the court. Otherwise we get in trouble and he wouldn't do it. He would forget. And then I would go to a master calendar hearing and the judge would say, what state your address? And I would, and he said, it doesn't, it doesn't match what I have. Um, and then like spew whatever rhetoric he wanted at me targeted to me, like I'm the one who did something wrong and that stuff would take a toll on me. It would really affect me. Like why does he talk down to me? I can't talk back. I can't defend myself. I can't say, well, my attorney is not the one who didn't, you know, um, isn't the one who didn't, who didn't file the paperwork. So that was an example of like the malpractice that would happen. My attorney, like during my testimonials, he would submit the brief late. Mm. Um, and so some of the evidence was not, couldn't be used in the case in my and he would present evidence in the eleventh hour and the judge would again take it out on me and say he said specifically, you're making a mockery out of my courtroom. you wow. deserve to be deported right again, targeted at me. So wow. that was one of the things I was dealing with that then the fear of what is de- deportation when you are stateless when you are mm. stateless, I was stateless because, zambia didn't recognize me as a citizen because at the point that if you're born in zambia and you haven't lived there your entire life i did not know that when you turn 18 that was the you know, constitution back in the early two thousand. you have to claim citizenship how would i know that when i was 18 i didn't know that i was still like transitioning into college right and then congo didn't acknowledge me as a citizen because i wasn't born there and also because it's governance change. It was Zaire when I was there, you know, mm. my mother and were born there and now it was DRC. Wow. So I like, you know, like I, all those situations, it's like
0: a movie, it's like a plot.
1: <laughs> right. And so at the end of the day. That's how I became stateless. So when you're stateless and you're being so, but doesn't that mean they can't deport you then? Because where are they deporting you to? So that's exactly the question. Where are they deporting you to? So, you know, again, this is all catch 22. It's so like convoluted. This is why immigration is so convoluted and nothing makes sense and no one really understands it. Um they deport you to a third country. If they can find, if a third country is willing to take you now, who's going to say, yes, I want to take more you know, people. No, no third country. I mean, they were, the irony was they were trying to send me to Mexico, right? Like that wow. was the irony. And if not, then you stay in a detention facility. You can stay in there indefinitely.
0: Indefinitely. Right.
1: Right. And wow. we know that are human rights atrocities to happen. I know someone who is stateless, who was put in an detention facility, not indefinitely for two weeks and suffered major trauma and is now um, has a monitor is like under house, like arrest with a monitor and is monitored by, you know, like ice, it, you know what I mean? Like, that's like being, that's like being imprisoned your whole life for what reason for being a minor for being a child and being a result and 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 just being in extenuating circumstances that were beyond your control like that is exactly what many people are dealing with and so that was my fear my fear was going to a detention facility and you know i know that some of like it was something that I could not fathom. I knew that I would not survive that. I knew that I would not survive the the torture, the humiliation. I, I just wouldn't be able to survive that. So for me, it took such a toll on me that I was suicidal because I just, I thought this is all I had suicidal ideation because I thought I just want to escape no matter what I do, you know, I always was taught, my stepfather taught me, if you work hard and you things will work out for you. And here I was working hard, going to school, trying to take care of myself, being a good person, paying taxes every year, doing all these things the right way. And it wasn't working out for me. So no, that wasn't true. And there was no relief. And that's what it felt like at that time. And obviously- you know, um, you know, we never want to make light of suicidal ideation. And anytime anyone has any, any thoughts, they should seek help immediately. And I did, I did seek help. I went to a therapist, you know, and this is where I'm able to draw all the pockets of um, resources that need, that we need to equip to Mm. support our immigrant community, because I spent more time trying to explain what immigration was to my therapist than having my therapist actually console me and help me. I didn't
0: know. Mm -hmm.
1: And so I spent time just explaining things, which was more exhausting. Um, So that was the trauma. It was that. And then also living this double life of being a student and (laughs) like just being normal, like trying to be and trying to like, you know, compartmentalize and the thing is, I didn't tell any of my friends. I told them very little, like, oh, I'm having right. an." number. Were- so because- everyone was
0: still treating you like you're regular. I mean, it's one right. thing to read your books when your, your girlfriend right. breaks up with you is one thing. Another thing to focus and being able to study and concentrate when you have this full court system. But tell me you fired that lawyer though.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I didn't have money. So this was someone who was pro bono. I I It was really, and then I went through several other attorneys who would say things like, "So flippantly, like just get married." Um, I will tell you, I I I don't judge anyone for choosing to get married, whatever route they take. It's not my place to judge, but what I will tell you is that when someone oversimplifies um, the undocumented or stateless struggle and says, "Just get married." Um mm-hmm. it just it it's it doesn't work. It doesn't always work. It's very risky. It doesn't guarantee anything. It's this is not a Hollywood movie that we see people get yep. married and they like it doesn't work. I've seen people who've done it and it's worked. That's not my place to judge. I've also seen people who've done it and they've gotten caught and their lives have gotten even worse. True. Right? Especially that when you've already difficult. started
0: another right. process, right? And in the middle you're right. getting married. That raises some suspicion.
1: Right. And I also know people who are stateless who got married and are still stateless. Right. right. Um, so that was not, you know, I did not want to destroy the sanctity of marriage by doing something like this. Right. But again, there's no judgment on what other people do. That's not my place. But at that time, I didn't want to. And I also felt like that's, it's just not that simple. So I went through a series of attorneys and finally, Um, It was through my, my, my high school prep school benefactor who decided to, you know, submit, give me contribute to my, a retainer of $2,000. That's Uh how I finally found my, my, you know, my final attorney, who was the one who helped me go public. And I ended up speaking on Capitol Hill on behalf of the Dream Act. But, you know, and I, I, I also, I need to acknowledge that had I not had that resource, where would I be? So imagine not everyone has a, had a, I, a benefactor who paid their way through prep school. Not everyone had private funding to go to college or graduate school. So what hope do they have? What chances do they have if it was hard for me with all of the, the support that I had and all the resources that I had, right? So, I mean, right. I think it's, it's. I always like to put those things in perspective because in no way, you know, one of the reasons I, I refrained, there was a time where I was, you know, I stopped being public and sharing my story because I felt like I couldn't offer anyone a prescription, right? I can't I can't tell someone if they do exactly what I did, took It'll, the same mm. route, they would end up in the same situation as a US citizen today. I couldn't guarantee mm. that. And that's what this what's so scary and so problematic about this immigration ecosystem. It really is the roll of a dice. It's so random. And, you know, on my website, like I have, like I created like a board game just to kind of illustrate my journey and like, it's really, and just the randomness of it, but to make that long story short, seven years of going back and forth hearings, um, you know, trying to balance all those things that I mentioned, the mental health component, school, um, trying to figure out how I'm going to get a job because I wasn't in school for seven years. Eventually you you have to come out of school. Um, So then it was, okay, well, do I get, how do I get a job? I need money. I need a place to stay. You know, I was able to, through my graduate school studies, I took law courses, immigration law, whatever. I started advocating for myself. I figured out that I was eligible technically for work authorization every 90 days. I was able to do that. So I was like, I I became my attorney's right hand so I could advocate for myself. Wow. That's the way that I was able to move forward in my situation. And, you know, seven years later, I was still stuck with that same judge and uh, my same case judge 20.
0: for seven years. Is that typical? Is that usual? Yes,
1: yes it, it can happen. I mean, unless your attorney requests to have your case removed, moved to a different, um, court but i think there's like lots of approvals like i'm not an attorney but i know that it was not something that i was able to do um i think that judge was like i said he was on a crusade to just make sure that i learned my lesson whatever he thought my lesson was yeah. and um my case was sent to the board of immigration appeals in falls church virginia which is the highest immigration court and twice. The first time they sent it back to the judge and said, hey, you know, figure it out. And and then we went back and appealed again. And um, they did what the unthinkable, like this is a, an institution that is, you know, like they are overburdened with cases, hundreds of thousands of cases. They sometimes, they seldom get to chance to go through those cases. I mean, they're just you know, it. They're 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 over overworked, and they did the unthinkable. They read through my case. They provided like a six page response, remanded it back to the judge, and basically said, "You you are we're telling you that you have to grant her a green card, a permanent residency status. Wow. Like, he's closed. You, you don't get any more. You don't get to, to 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 rule this anymore. We're gonna tell you what to do." And if that wasn't the best and the most satisfactory outcome, beyond satisfactory, and my attorney, my last attorney at the time, who was amazing, she said like this is this is like rare. This doesn't happen. There's like one in five hundred. I she's like I've just never seen this happen. I mean, the likelihood of you this happening to you was slim to none. We we I she just thought that we were in it for the long haul, and so I was incredibly grateful and just relieved and um you know I I think you know my being so public certainly helped um I think you know
0: oh so you had gone public while the case were still ongoing yeah. and like kind of I like starting to- yeah oh, I, I mean wow.
1: at that point my my last attorney said look we don't have any other we've exercised every other option we've gone to you know we went to so many different congressmen and state senators offices we 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 appealed to all these people we wrote letters here we reached out to the UN we looked at there was there was nothing there was nothing left and and so hey I had my attorney's feedback was like look if this is going to happen we at least need the the American people to know who you are the kind of the kind of The things that are happening to people like yourselves in the United States, people need to know. And that's when I just went public. And my very first public appearance was speaking at the late Senator John McCain's rally on immigration in New York City. I was one of the first speakers, and he came to me afterwards and he thanked me for my courage. And this is where I, when I didn't know much about who he was and, you know, didn't just appreciate it. And when I look back, I'm like, wow, that was such a powerful moment where this man who was a prisoner of war and survived, thanked me for my courage, you know, and that just, that meant a lot.
0: Wow, wow. And and this, like, it's, it's like a catch-22, right? Because I, I did some research and there are, like, what, 13 or 15 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Majority of those people pay taxes and contribute, like, economically to the United States. So it's like, on the one hand, the IRS is not asking for your papers before they take your money <laughs> but on the other end other agencies are kind of like say oh no you can't do this officially or you can do this legally it's right. like a almost like a hypocrisy that's going on between these government parastatals but
1: yeah um, there. I mean I'll throw out some other stats because I think it's important um for listeners to know especially if they're not in the U.S. like yes they're you know like 11, 12, 13 million undocumented people. Um, There are about 3.9 million of them that are dreamers, meaning they came to the U.S. between the age of four and six. Um, So that's people like myself um, who would not qualify for DACA, right? Um, Because there's a certain stipulation of the age requirement um, to qualify for DACA. Um, So I would not have been eligible for DACA when DACA was in inst- I wasn't gonna be eligible. Um there are close to you know 3.9 million people like myself who are not eligible. DACA is not a path to citizenship. DACA, like there's Facts. a host uh, cost um component to to DACA. It's just it's temporary, it's just a it's a temporary um so- solution to just so a person can work and, and go to school, but it's not it's not the solution. Uh, the majority of undocumented people are people that overstayed their visa. So people like myself, they came to the U.S. with their parents, right? Or they came to the U.S. and then they just overstayed their visa. It's not people who are crossing the borders like the media likes to portray. Ah, that is- so
0: it's not like how the news is painting it that no, you know, people the from the south of the border crossing into Texas and all that. The people who fly
1: by plane and come here and they stay and they decide They decide for whatever reason I'm going to stay. Like those, that's what's driving undocumented immigration. Like, but that's not what people, the media is portraying. Um, and then there are about, you know, 200, 300,000 stateless persons in the United States, but there are 12 million across the world. And according to the United Nations, every 10 minutes, a new a stateless child is born. So think about you know, what that number is going to look like in the future as people are displaced from war, you know, from natural disasters, from all of these things. So um, there's a lot, there's a lot um, that that needs to be addressed in the space of immigration. It is a huge ecosystem. We don't, I don't expect everybody to know and understand all the nuances, but I do think it's important for us as citizens who are who are seeing and, and and taking all this information in is to ask more questions, ask questions to your local congressperson, yes. like ask those questions, you know, when you see, you know, what's happening on the news, ask, well, you know, how does this relate back to, because there's so many different groups of immigration immigrants, right? There's so many pockets. So ask like, how does this connect back to DACA? How does this connect back to, um, you know uh stateless people how does this like just ask those general questions as a starting point um because the more we start to inquire with our you know our 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 local politicians the more we force them to like to be more honest with us and stop Mm -hmm. feeding us all this whatever it is these illusions
0: yeah, I mean I totally hear you. I mean, what's one advice you give for? I mean, there will probably be a bunch of people who are listening to this who are probably undocumented or are thinking about coming to the US. Not that you're planning to be undocumented, but if they happen to to become undocumented, like giving you know your ordeal with being undocumented and stateless, like what's one advice? Uh, certainly the, the lawyer part is like kind of try to get the best lawyer, but what's what are other tips you can maybe give?
1: I mean, to not be undocumented, I mean, I know that sounds so trite the way I'm saying it, but if you're coming to the US, like do your, understand what the, what the laws and the regulations are at the time, like really understand the terms of your visa, understand what happens if you overstay your visa, like talk to someone, a, a, a legal professional, just to understand all of those um you know, all those ramifications up front before you make that decision. Because once you make it, you just want to know what are your options, you know? What happens if you leave the country, you know, and and self-deport? Well, how long, you know, can you come back? And, you know, what are all those things that can be done, um, you know, to, to rectify the situation? So I think it's important to do your, your due diligence. Um, and the other is, not just to find a lawyer to but to be your own advocate. I'm not saying mm. that you need to like become you know study take an immigration, you know, 101 course, but be your advocate like your lawyer your lawyer is not your savior. Your lawyer is not your doctor. Your lawyer is there to help to manage your case. But remember that he, she, they have multiple and competing priorities. Their number one priority is the person that's literally going to be handcuffed and taken to a detention facility like today like that is your, their number one priority. And then all the other cases come after. I mean, unless you're paying them a whole lot of money, right? So you have to stay on top of things and be your own advocate, reach out to them. You know, if you don't hear from them, get, ask clarifying questions. When I don't hear from you, what should I assume? You know, um, you know, are you working on my case? Are you try are you trying to avoid me? You know, what should I assume? So I know how to navigate, navigate and not, panic and freak out all the time like ask those clarifying questions and be your own advocate and remember you have agency we feel it's so easy to feel like a loss of dignity to feel like we don't have power when when we're in this position um, because it feels like that and for all intents and purposes everything and everything around us is telling us that we have zero power or zero influence but if you really believe in if you really believe in that then you have given up all your power you've just given it over so you want to harness the little power you have even if it's your voice if the power is the power for you to reach research and investigate if the power is identifying and creating your own group pa- group of like uh, what would I call it like advisory committee right like your friend becomes your support And then your other person, you know, you've got like your therapist or you got a counselor, you have like create your own power group to support you so that you don't feel like you don't have agency. And remember the agency you do have, even if it's like small slither of power agency you have, hold on to that. Hold on to that. You cannot allow anyone to take that from you.
0: Well said, well said. And I'm sure you, you gave many more tips in your book. I mean, you have a book where you shared a lot of these experiences and, and you know, I wouldn't say advice, but, you know, kind of like your own experiences type of thing. And and the title of the book is Illegal Among Us, which is a very powerful and self-explanatory name. Um, but what, well, I wouldn't say what led you to write the book, but what was the point <laughs> that motivated you that, oh, this incident happened? You know what I need to, do. it's just getting to this is a straw that broke the camels back. I just have to document all of this.
1: Well, I was documenting it throughout my whole journey. Um, at mm. first it was just a diary. You know, it was about, look, I, I'm i probably going to end up in a detention facility. I'm probably not going to make it out alive. And that was my legitimate fear. And so I want to have some sort of legacy for people to know my story. And so maybe this diary will be something I'm going to hand to a friend before i am you know put in detention and they will publish wow. it that was literally my that's what yeah. i believe and um and when things change i thought this is stranger than fiction because i would tell people my story they go that's just Unbelievable. I don't believe that that all couldn't have happened in your one life. And you're 20 something. I, you know, I was 27 at the time when I I, I got my US, um, my past um, permanent resident status. They're like, I feel like you're making some of this up. Like, this is just all too, you know, it's like you're the luckiest unlucky person I know. Like, it's like a, like a movie. It's like, you made this up. And so I felt like I needed to write my story down. So people knew that this is like, this was the face of immigrant immigration and statelessness. And I needed people to know that. Um, And so that was my motivation. And then, you know, when I finally published it, it was, this is a way to humanize people like myself. And mm-hmm. I also want people to, like myself to know that they have other people like them you know very
0: important
1: story and i wanted to highlight the mental health component because i felt like that was overlooked that nothing the media nobody was really talking about that and i wanted people to understand like this it takes such a toll on on a person in terms of their mental health and it can be a breaking point for many people it absolutely can and um and i wanted people to understand what that that experience looked like and to and i think that's that's a that's a that's a human condition that anyone and everyone can relate to powerful you know? yeah
0: powerful no i respect it i, re- I respect it a lot uh, and, you know, her, her book can be found at Ill- illegalamongus.com. And I I think it's also on Amazon.
1: On Amazon. Very, very,
0: very powerful yes. story. Like someone needs to make this into a movie, to be honest. Like it's just, Thank and you. you know, like you said, the representation is very important because sometimes like it's it's important for you to be, you know, public with this to share your story. So other people are going through this. I I know for sure that some of our listeners uh, might be going through this. But let me ask you one last question. Um, So the education piece is important, uh, both for, you know, um, currently people who are undocumented and even like general populace to educate yourself more about the different nuances to people who might be stateless or undocumented. What, in your opinion, if you could wave a magic wand and change certain policy or laws, like what would you want the United States government to do about this situation of you know, people being undocumented, general immigration if issues, what are some of the things you like to see passed and implemented?
1: yeah, that's a that's a loaded question. and it's one that you know I do get asked a lot. and I like I said, I don't have I don't have all the answers, but I do know that we really need to reevaluate the court systems because that's where everybody most people are going through Back. the court system they're backed up. Um, immigration judges are also, they're given quotas. Um, they have to like go through like a thousand cases. Um, I think on average a year, they're given quotas. They don't have a lot of judicial power in determining the outcome of the cases because they're given quotas. Like you need to, you know, prove this many and this many. And so they don't have that judicial independence. Um, so that needs to be reevaluated. We don't have a jury in immigration courts, right? The immigration courts sit under mm. the executive branch, they don't sit under the judicial branch. Um, you know, so th- the whole court system, immigration court system needs to be re redone, re-, re reevaluated. Also, the other thing about it is there's such a shortage of immigration judges that attorneys who have like a background in a different practice become immigration judges can be appointed to immigration judges so you be like a tax attorney and then you know a few years later you become an immigration judge right i mean this is not that's like taking someone who is i don't know um i'm trying to make an analogy uh, you know uh, a podiatrist and having them do neurosurgery you know what i mean brain surgery on somebody I don't know that we need we need something much more um, effective and uh, we need to incentivize people. We need to incentivize more people to go through that, that route of becoming an immigration judge. If we have more judges and we have less quotas, well then, and and you have more fairness in the courtroom, well then the outcome can look different. And then we also have to do the same thing for, for um, attorneys, immigration attorneys, especially the ones who are managing and driving removal proceedings. Like we need to have more resources for them, um, incentivize them in, in law school, having more lawyers want to do and, and go become immigration attorneys, you know, like money needs to be allocated to them more money. So, um, I think that there are a number of things that we can begin to do to like, um, to unpack and, 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 and fix the infrastructure. So I'm very much of a structural person. So I really am looking at the infrastructure. Um, certainly there are laws, you know, you, you know there are lots of laws that we can we can consider um we can look at history and look at um you know all the laws that have been passed in the in, in the past like with amnesty but i don't necessarily have the right you know i don't necessarily have an answer for well this is it like we do this we 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 give everybody amnesty because if we do that there's still going to be a reoccurring issue, right? Recurring, so yeah. um, I would say the infrastructure, and I would say we need more people like myself. I think we should create a gov- like a body of government, government, immigration governance, that it not only includes economists, politicians, but people who've lived the experience and have survived the experience to also be part of that group that is coming up with the policies the law makes sense that that's makes what sense. i think just just
0: like it's, it's it's attempted to be done in like uh, the diversity space as well yes. kind yes. of like in the immigration space but you've said a lot i know you said you can't really recommend but you, that's a lot like um one last question can you remember the day of your naturalization your naturalization ceremony how, how is that day like for you
1: oh man i can't remember the date can you imagine i can't remember the date it's like or
0: the feeling, or, or what, how, oh, what yeah, happened that day? Was, when you
1: have to eat? It was just really funny because here it was amazing but funny, and like it was like it was a culmination of everything. I mean, up until the day I got my citizenship, I didn't know if I was actually going to get it because even though I had my permanent residency, when you're stateless you still don't have a passport from your country, right? Remember I came on mm. my passport. You don't have citizenship of any country, which means when you are applying for US citizenship and they ask you what country are you from and like prove, provide that documentation. If you don't have it, it's subject to whoever is managing your case to decide to grant you citizenship or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not they decide that like they're overwhelmed by your response and you're like, I'm stateless. If they feel like, look, this is too much. I don't know. Like they could just say, deny you. And so it never, it was never over until it was actually over until I got like, like U S citizenship. So the day of my citizenship ceremony, it was just, um, I think, you know, Obama was on the teleprompter, uh, not on the top. It was like a recording of Obama. It was a whole bunch of individuals in rows sitting or standing in rows. Um, and uh, from all over the country, all over the world, actually. And we were given these tiny little American flags and then they started to play. It was really cheesy, um, proud to be an American. And they were like, they were making us wave the flags. And then the, there's a the woman like right behind me. She was from Italy. She just starts cracking up, laughing. <laughs> and then the guy next to me starts laughing. Then I start laughing and everybody starts laughing. And it was probably like the best release that I've had in so long, cause it was like, it was like a way of letting out all of it. And I think mm. it was a collective release. All of our stories, all of our journeys culminated in that one moment where, you know, we we were watching a teleprompter of the president and like a, a recording of the president waving this flag. So it was fun. It was funny. It was uneventful in a lot of ways, but it was eventful in many ways. Right. And I think that's just an illustration of, you know, in life, we give meaning to things. We're the ones who give it meaning. Like, you know, what does it mean to be an American, really? I'm still, people still ask me where I'm from all the time and go, And I say, I'm from the U S they go, no, no, no. where are you really from? Where are you really from? Right. Anywhere I go in the world. So it's all, it just put everything into perspective. Like you, you can put so much emphasis on this thing and this thing that you want. And then when you get it, like, like it means whatever it means, it can mean like laughter and waving a cheesy little tiny flag and singing and being forced to sing proud to be an American. Like that's what it can mean. So and was it
0: anticlimactic or it was? It just, was,
1: it was uh, the, the best way possible. I mean, it was just, it was just a release. And uh, it was the beginning of me, like figuring out, going on, like trying to figure out what my identity was, because here I had been this girl who'd been surviving life from the time she was like 13 to the time she was like, you know from 13 to like 33 and now here I was I was free and it's like what now what who am I right right that's a lot there's like so much pressure so it was like laughter yeah. to let it out like this is all so funny like this is all just so it, there's a there was a comedic moment in all of it just like in life there's a comedic relief, even in the worst of times. And so uh, I found that moment in my ceremony. It was anticlimactic, but it was also amazing at the same time.
0: I was so happy for you regardless. Like I'm sure like, like Africans will say, we tap into your blessing. <laughs> and I know a lot of people that listen to this will be inspired as well. I want to be like you when I grow up. Uh, how oh, can people find you? Like if, if someone has like a, a question, you're undergoing like some proceedings, they want to ask a quick question or, or they want to, you know, hire you to speak or something. How can people find you?
1: Yeah. So, um, what I, uh, on my website, illegal, illegal among us.com, um, which is the same title as my book is where you can go. I have some, um, hand out some freebies on some recommendations on how you can find a good attorney, um some recommendations on how you can prep to you know have a conversation with an immigration attorney, things like that. I like to just preface that, you know, I'm not an attorney, so I'd never like to advise on, you know, anything around immigration specifically. But what I can advise on is how do you maximize, the, you know, the relationship you have with your attorney and how to advocate for yourself when you're working with an attorney. Um, And then certainly, yes, I'm always available and open for speaking engagements and so forth. So you can find all that information on my website. Um, I do also have another website called MartineKalau.com, And that's where um, my focus is mainly on diversity equity and inclusion work and the consulting work that I do for a lot of um, corporate clients so either of those websites are more than fine to find nice
0: people. and we'll have the link to those websites in the show notes so if you guys want to click on that and check her out um you'll be happy you did trust me like I've been on our website trying to do research all day and there's a lot of resources so thank, thank you, you so much Martin Calao for coming on the podcast um for listeners who are listening, I hope you're inspired by today's conversation. It's Culture Class Podcast. Uh, reach out to us, it's cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website as well. Check out old episodes. And until next time, be well.